Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to today's show, which uh, is with Phil Geiger from Unchained Capital. I think um, you're going to enjoy this one. They're doing a great um, amount of work around multi-signature and helping people understand what that is, number one, and how it can help you take extra steps to protect what, what you have, what you have already taken care of with your private keys, what's the next step, and how can they help you. So I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, just a quick shout out as usual for Real Vision. $1 unlocks uh, 30 days of all their content. Please go and check that out. It's a no-brainer. And if you would like to learn more about my book, it's called uh, Choose Life. It's about uh, world schooling and um, digital nomads and how we home swapped our way around the world, you know, taking our kids out of formal education for uh, two or three years and the effect that, that had on us and our families. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. So just give it a, a one, two, one, two, and make sure you're seeing a wavy line your end. Okay, I'm recording on Zoom. And you're recording on Zoom, yeah? Okay, cool, man. All right, we're all set to go. Okay, I'd like to welcome today's guest, and I, I hope I pronounced this right. Um, Phil Geiger, is that the... the <laughs> Bill Geiger from Unchained Capital. Yeah, Welcome I, to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. I had to recently update my name from Phil Geiger to Phil Geiger. So I'm going through the legal process right now. It's been uh, a bit of a challenge, but I think it's going to be worth it. I, I really do. And that's your fiat name, right? Phil Geiger. Yeah, Phil Geiger was my fiat name. <laughs> my, my Bitcoin name is now Phil Geiger. <laughs> yeah, it's a little more festive, I think. Uh, it, it's a little bit more meaningful uh, based on the times that we find ourselves living in. I need to change to Daniel Prince, I guess. That's um, everybody seems to be doing this on uh, on Twitter. Actually, for for the for for any noobs that are listening, do you want to explain that uh, so they can um, fall into the joke? Absolutely. Uh, about a month ago, um, around uh, Black Thursday or March twelfth, when when the stock market and global finance started collapsing, um, and the, the Federal Reserves and central banks around the world came out with their stimulus packages. Um, that you know are, are going up into the the trillions of U.S. dollars. Um, there was a meme that was released uh, into the world called "Money Printer Go Brr," and it's it's a I believe they're called a Wojak, where they're they're kind of like a rage comic uh, type face, and he's he's printing money, and there's a little lever that you can pull on a website, and if you uh, if you pull the lever up to full brr, then uh, some some really awesome death metal starts playing and the screen starts shaking and the money printer just starts going crazy. Uh, but it's really funny because it's also um, in the background, there's a, a picture of the stock market collapsing. So no matter how hard uh, the, the money printer goes, it doesn't seem to be helping um, in the long run. So it's been a very good meme. And I think a lot of people on the internet have, have adopted it as their own um, as you know, it, as part of their Twitter handle and, and just as a response to, uh, the endless, uh, inflation and infinite QE that we're seeing. Yeah, for sure. And actually, 
we were talking about this just a second ago, your, your, your recent article, uh, 21 million. Um, did that spur that? Like, just watching this all unfold? My recent article was 21 million is non-negotiable. And it, like many of my most recent articles, was spawned initially from just conversations that we have at Unchained Capital among different uh, employees. So my last article was all 21 million Bitcoin already exists. This one is 21 million is non-negotiable. Um, and it was, it was my article in response to the, the question that just still seems to permeate, which is, will Bitcoin be secure after the block subsidy decreases to zero and it just must be secure via transaction fees? Um, and, you know, in some ways, yes, it's a response to money printer go, um, but also it's just, it, it if you're if you're asking that question, I think you have to dive a little bit deeper and understand what makes it secure today and what makes it valuable in general. And a lot of the solutions to, you know, trying to to fix this potential issue of of security in the future uh, devolve down into inflating the supply or changing the issuance. But the reason that Bitcoin is valuable primarily today is because it has a rigid supply. So so changing the supply, can't make it more secure. That's sort of the the Keynesian mindset that um, kind of by default comes out in a lot of the ways that we approach problems and uh, try to try to formulate solutions. So the the question is um, a lot of times used, I think, for um, altcoin marketing reasons. Like my altcoin prioritizes security over issuance, but in reality, what we see is that Bitcoin is really the only cryptocurrency that is secure. I mean, all other uh, cryptocurrencies are, have far less uh, security than Bitcoin, even though a lot of them have tried out all of these uh, different inflation schedules. And simultaneously, we're looking at you know around the world that that fiat currencies are uh, surprisingly fragile, and they've taken the opposite approach from Bitcoin as well. So Bitcoin derives its security. By being valuable, and the primary reason that it's valuable is that the supply is fixed. Uh, that's a really, really disruptive and um, a kind of a mind-blowing invention. It wasn't. I think a lot of times Bitcoin is looked at as the invention that gave everybody the power to print their own currency, and we see that through, you know, the explosion of altcoins out there. But from my perspective. Uh, Bitcoin's innovation was taking the power to print money away from everyone or giving everybody the ability to avoid printed money. And that's the true innovation because there was not an option to do that before Bitcoin. Everything about it is designed to make that supply super rigid. Yeah. And it's one of those, it, that that's one of the, the facets of Bitcoin that just made me like sit up and take notice and, and stick around for the very long run. Um and I think I first had that hammered home to me when I was watching uh, Mark Hart interviewed on Real Vision. And the way he put it was like, um, you know, it's the world's first undilutable asset. And I was like, wow, that really struck home. Yeah, I want to go back to something that you said at the beginning of your answer there, which um, I want to come back to again for anybody that's new to the space and trying to understand exactly what's going on. Um, you said moving to like a, a fee-based uh, system or a fee-based um, reward. Uh, could you explain exactly what you mean by that and 
help anybody kind of in the rabbit hole who's trying to figure all of this out? Absolutely. So Bitcoin was designed with a terminal or end supply of 21 million coins. Those coins were are released on a schedule uh, on average every 10 minutes. <clears throat> the first four years of Bitcoin's existence, every 10 minutes, 50 BTC were released um, per 10 minutes or in each block. Uh, after that, for the second four years, it was 25. Where we find ourselves today, the issuance is 12.5 Bitcoin per 10 minutes. And then in about 20 days, or I believe May 11th or 12th, that gets cut in half again to 6.25 Bitcoin. Now, the reason that people choose to mine Bitcoin is because Bitcoin is a, is a valuable uh, monetary good. So they are, what they're really doing is they're trying, they're going out and they're finding the cheapest electricity that they can find. And they're converting that electricity into uh, SHA-256 hashes. So a cryptographic hash. They're taking electricity, they're converting it into a hash in order to process transactions and find blocks. So every 10 minutes, a new block is found. And in that block is the block reward, which is today 12.5 Bitcoin. But it also contains um, transaction fees that people have paid. So if you want to send a Bitcoin transaction, you if you want it to be uh, confirmed relatively quickly, you should always include a transaction fee. So you get to choose that at the time of making the transaction. Now, Bitcoin skeptics will say that in the future, as this block reward gets cut in half again, so like I said, next month it's changing to 6.25. Four years later, that'll be cut in half, um, all the way until that 21 million limit has really uh, been reached. Skeptics will say that at some point in time, um, well, transaction fees are going to have to get so expensive in order to pay for security that Bitcoin will become unusable, and you'll have to find an alternative. Um, or Bitcoin will, will never be secure enough because miners won't have an incentive to go out, find electricity to sell it to the network. I argue that the number of Bitcoin that is released every 10 minutes has never really mattered that much, or the amount of transaction fees that have been paid in, in Bitcoin, in the number of Satoshis or Bitcoin, has never been important. What's always been important is the value of the reward. And today, at 12.5 Bitcoin uh, per block for a reward, as well as you know, additional transaction fees, the value of the reward is higher than almost any other time in Bitcoin's history. So in the first four years, every 10 minutes, 50 Bitcoin were released uh, in addition to transaction fees. At almost no point in time during the first four years were 50 plus Bitcoin worth anywhere near what 12.5 Bitcoin plus transaction fees are worth today. So numerically, that number keeps getting lower, but from a value perspective, the value increases. So even though the number of Bitcoin released every 10 minutes has gone down, like the amount of hash power, the amount of security demanded by the network has increased, it has increased because the value has increased. So I think uh, for those... Um, I guess, I guess to, to kind of recap, the inputs of this system are electricity, the value of Bitcoin, and the fixed rules about Bitcoin. So really, the only thing that can change over time um, is the amount of electricity demanded um, or the value of Bitcoin. And that's all calibrated by 
uh, the Bitcoin network's decreasing block reward as well as the difficulty adjustment. So the difficulty adjustment ensures that on average blocks are found every 10 minutes. Uh, so the network kind of balances itself out. And from a network perspective, it never, it, it, it has no way to understand how much a given Bitcoin is valued. That's all sort of our subjective uh, view of a Bitcoin. All it can do is recalibrate itself to maintain its fixed supply. Um, so whenever you're, you're uh, kind of looking at Bitcoin, just always be thinking about the value of it, not, not numerically. Um, we're kind of trained, I think, uh, to, to, to not think too hard about the value of currency because over time for fiat currencies, the value is decreasing. We're always kind of trained to look at the numbers like, oh, you know, making, being a billionaire, that's amazing. You know, 60 years ago, being a billionaire was impossible, right? Because, <laughs> or not impossible, but extremely rare because the value of the dollar was so much higher. Today, being a billionaire is like, yeah, you've launched a couple companies. <laughs> So it, we, we really, really have to pay attention to value um, and, and learning about the subjective theory of value is very important to that. Um, so I think, I think the final point is the reason that Bitcoin will be secure is because people value it and therefore will demand electricity in order to secure it. And it, yeah, I mean, right now your reward is like 12 and a half uh, Bitcoin and you know, to, to solve a block that could be anywhere between 75000 to $12,500 if we just take a, a range. But when we get, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years down the line and you're only mining for like one or two Bitcoin, but the price is, you tell me where the price is going to be in 30, 40 years, Phil. <laughs> because, you know, it, also, so the, the, the Bitcoin network was designed to, to function uh, without being priced in U.S. dollars, right? The, the U.S. dollar, there's an infinite supply of U.S. dollars per uh, the, the president of the Minneapolis uh, Fed's own word. There's an infinite supply of, of U.S. dollars. There are 21 million Bitcoin. Um, and it's been it, it was designed to survive despite a constantly fluctuating value. Um, and it survives through the way that it recalibrates itself. So yeah, the 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 value of the U.S. dollar could go to zero. I mean, that you know, if there's infinite dollars, then the, what's value? Anything, anything divided by infinity is zero. Any number. Um, so Bitcoin is is just kind of a stark contrast to that, and it it has never required other currencies to to exist in order to function. It has only required some people to value it, um, and that's that's how it stays alive. If if you and I stopped saving in Bitcoin. It would, it would probably die. Or if enough people stopped valuing it, it would go away. It wouldn't be important. But what we're seeing is the exact opposite of that, right? More and more people are valuing it. And therefore, uh, the price measured in other currencies has increased. The amount of electricity demanded has increased. Um, the hash rate, which is um, the amount of hashes that are produced uh based on the electricity that's spent has, has hit essentially all time highs. I think we're over a hundred thousand, a hundred million exahash or something. Um, so yeah, the, the, the skeptics don't, don't usually have uh, a good way to describe why all of a sudden people are going to stop valuing it. Um, 
And I think that's that's where a lot of the confusion stems from. Do you think the skeptics are under underestimating the hodlers? Absolutely. Like yeah. I mean, the other <laughs> the, the other kind of um, term that I've seen thrown around is is well, the other way that that I think confusion is is kind of spread is by um, by spreading this idea that Bitcoin is under the control of of some group or some small group of people or entities, uh, when in reality. If you store value in Bitcoin, you are a monetary policy governor. Any amount of value, you know, even actually, you probably don't even need to store value in Bitcoin. If you run a node and don't own any Bitcoin, you're actively participating. If you develop code, don't own any Bitcoin, you're keeping Bitcoin alive. Um, so, the the power to to control this 21 million supply is really in the hands of each person who holds bitcoin i mean i think if if you run a full node you are then a very very uh, empowered participant of the bitcoin if you're storing value in it and run a full node that means that you get to choose which policies you believe in um, now if you choose a policy that other people don't believe in you're not going to get very far. And we've seen that uh, over the course of the last 11 years with all of the Bitcoin forks. Um, so the BCH crew thought that um, you know, their version of Bitcoin was really superior. But once again, if you look at the value of these things, uh, the market is telling them a very uh, different opinion or giving them a different opinion. It's saying, nope, you guys were very out of consensus. I mean, it's worth you know, a couple percent of a Bitcoin. Um, and it's, it's being kept alive by speculators and traders. Um, so if you're running a full known and you're sto storing uh, Bitcoin, uh, storing value in Bitcoin, you are extremely empowered to uh, make your own decisions about how you want to see the network uh, advancing. Um, so definitely recommend running a full node if you, um, if you have, have Bitcoin. Then you get to choose which software your node follows. Um, gives you an active way to participate. Okay, that's um, yeah. There's lots to dig into uh, into there. Um, first of all, wh where can people read that article that we were talking about? The article is called Twenty One Million is Non Negotiable," and you can find it on the Unchained Capital blog. Um, so we have some some truly excellent uh, Bitcoin education materials on our blog. We uh, my, my my colleague Parker Lewis has written. I think some of the best articles on Bitcoin over the last year in his Gradually Then Suddenly series. Specifically, if you haven't read them yet, I would say check out Bitcoin Obsoletes All Other Money and Bitcoin Is Not Backed by Nothing. Um, those are his two most, most popular. And then Dhruv Bonsal, one of our co-founders, has also written some excellent data science um, over the past year. Or so uh, he wrote initially the HODL Waves uh, research, which the HODL waves, if you haven't seen them yet, are a data visualization of the entire Bitcoin network showing the supply of Bitcoin and what percentage of the coins have been sitting in addresses for a period of time. <clears throat> it gives you a really, I think, elegant view of how Bitcoin is being used today. And it also kind of demonstrates how Bitcoin grows over time. You know, as the value of Bitcoin increases, uh, HODLers who have been hodling for, you know, three plus years, start to spend a little bit of their Bitcoin, and uh, and then that decreases the prices. When the price decreases, it allows new entrants to be like, all right, I've waited long enough. Now I can buy into Bitcoin, and through this process of uh, spikes and crashes, 
we see Bitcoin decentralizing further and further from the hands of um, OGs into the hands of newcomers. So it's a, it's a free market mechanism for distribution. But yeah, Dhruv has written uh, some excellent data science as well as last year's uh, Bitcoin astronomy, the law of hash horizons, which details how uh, Martian Bitcoin miners uh, are going to be uh, in a tough spot because they're too far away from Bitcoin's center of hash, which is going to be based on Earth. Uh, so that was a really fascinating sort of sci-fi slash data science article about uh, Bitcoin mining in space. And uh, the follow-up's actually coming pretty soon. So I'm excited for that one personally. Awesome. And, and it's funny that because uh, I was just talking with uh, John Vallas and, and Kay Van Devani the other day, and we were talking about um, moonshot guests we'd love to get on the podcast. And I'd love to have Elon on because I cannot for one second believe that he doesn't understand Bitcoin inside out. Um, maybe he read the article and he's like figured out, okay, so Bitcoin's not going to be our currency. We're going to have to think of a Martian token or something. Drew included Musk coin in the analysis <laughs> because as, as a result of being too far from Earth, uh, Martian Bitcoin miners wouldn't be able to win enough blocks to remain competitive. And as a result of that, of, of the distance of well, of light speed, really, um, the further away you get from Earth, the, the more you uh, are incentivized to launch your own currency because otherwise you're always paying settlement fees to those damn Terrans. Like, why, why do Earth, Earth miners get all the settlement fees for, you know, my uh, Martian colony? It's not fair. So he, he goes through the revolution, the Musk coin revolution as well. Oh, man, I'm going to dig that out. I had no idea that even existed. Yeah, it's great. Oh, right. It's okay. really, really I hope Guy Swan has read that. Guy, I hope you're listening. Yeah. Has he? Yeah, oh. he has. Yeah. So Guy Swan, Guy Swan has uh, been amazing and has put together uh, the Unchained Capital collection um, of, of audio uh, articles. And uh, yeah, has has Parker's articles, has um, one of my articles, and Drew's articles as well. Yeah, I've listened to Parker's ones. So, any, listeners, if you do not know Guy Swan at the Crypto Economy, he reads all of this amazing stuff. So, if you don't have time to read it, you can just stick it on um, whilst you're not whilst you're driving because we're all on lockdown. But uh, gardening, cooking, or whatever you're doing, trying to uh, ignore the kids, um, it's uh, that's the place to go. So, um, Phil, let's let's back up and like. What brought you to Bitcoin? Because um, you, you, what world were you in before? I find myself uh, kind of prime, or I, I found myself kind of prime for Bitcoin just based on uh, my background. So I studied economics uh, in college and just hated it. It uh, didn't seem like it was giving me the tools I needed to help de describe reality. Like a lot of it were, were models that were getting increasingly complicated with increasingly outrageous assumptions. Um, so really, yeah, didn't, didn't enjoy my degree, but felt like I needed to, to kind of cross that one off, like just get the certificate and move on with my life. So I went immediately from studying economics into implementing uh, healthcare software. So I uh, got that, that nice uh, technical background um, in the, the healthcare industry and then ran into Bitcoin. Uh, well, I, I think I'd probably heard of it before this, but in 2014 went to a, uh, 
nerd night talk. I don't know if you have nerd nights in your town, but it's uh, usually a local bar will host uh, nerd nights and it's, it's like an informal type of Ted talk. So grad students and random community members will go up and give a, you know, 10, 15, 20 minute presentation on a topic of their choosing. And I just so happened to be lucky enough to uh, stumble into a nerd night that was uh, where there was a Bitcoin presentation. And it was really about the history of money. And it contained enough of the puzzle pieces in my mind uh, to make Bitcoin click. And so I immediately got into it, started researching it, where I discovered the Austrian economics rabbit hole, of course. And since then, I've been, um, you know, going down that rabbit hole and was able to leave my fiat career in about 2017 to go full time in, into Bitcoin, where I did quite a bit of just independent writing and publishing and some contract work with a few of the different Bitcoin companies out there and startups. And then was lucky enough to find Unchained Capital in 2019 and where I've been there for about a year. Right. And um, what's, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you know, discovering Austrian economics as you would have been a Keynesian before that, because that's what you would have been having shoved down your throat at university or college. Um, how many years did that take? Well, I think, you know, Brady from Citizen Bitcoin just defines it perfectly as default Keynesianism. Like, that's all we right. know. That's all we're taught. Right. The, the Austrian school, unless you're in a very specific university or have found specific profession, uh, professors, is hardly ever even mentioned. Like, I don't think in my four years of university I ever heard of Mises or Rothbard or Hayek even. Maybe I'd heard of Hayek, but hadn't really dug into any of the, the research. Um, but yeah, like, you know, I think the first, the first real Austrian economics book I read was the Bitcoin standard. And then from there went immediately into human action where, uh, I had to lower my time preference significantly in order to get through that book, but was able to make it through. And as a result, I think, you know, I, I am now able to, uh, well, hopefully describe Bitcoin in a little bit more of a comprehensive or a deeper level. So one of the best tools that I've found in order to figure out what's happening with Bitcoin and what's going on are the uh, Austrian economic uh, Austrian economics um, texts. So, and if you were to sum up Austrian economics in like one sentence, sorry to do that to you, but uh, what, what would you say or a few words? Mm -hmm. Just because I was challenged on this the other day, and I was like, "Oh, you bastards!" <laughs> so. Austrian economics gives you the tools to uh, look at an argument or a uh, problem from first principles, which means drilling down to the base level assumptions and verifying that they are provably true or false, and then building, I think, logical deductions from there. Um, Hazlitt uh, describes it as, as thinking kind of beyond the immediate problem at hand and looking at the system as a whole, right? And it's understanding that, um, you know, there are second, third, fourth order implications of policy decisions or really any decisions that an individual takes that are not immediately apparent. Um, what I really liked about it is that 
as you're reading it, you can just think about yourself and be like, would I do it this way? And if the answer is yes, then you can kind of, uh, you can kind of, you know, move on with the, the logical deduction, but it all stems from, or good economics stems from how individuals act meaningfully. So every one of us around the world, we're all doing our best without having the ability to predict the future in taking actions that we hope will lead to favorable outcomes. Um, so what's, you know, to relate this to Bitcoin and one of the reasons why I, uh, always like to talk about running a full node, um, as an individual, you are taking an action in maintaining, you know, whichever monetary policy you deem worthy and running whichever code you deem worthy. And it's through the actions of tens to hundreds of thousands of individuals running full nodes and storing value in Bitcoin internationally that we get uh, this really, really robust system of security. Um, so, it, you know, and all of those all of those incentives that Bitcoin was designed for are just start from the foundation of the individual um, taking action, taking meaningful action. So when you buy Bitcoin, you're buying Bitcoin because you think it's going to increase in value. You think it's going to make you better off in the future. And that's not a unique, uh, that's not a, that's not unique to you, right? Like pretty much all of us believe that it's, um, you know, going to increase value in value over time. And, uh, so that's why we're excited about it. Um, it, that, that sort of framework gets, uh, distorted, I think, a little bit in, in saying, uh, and it is used to say that, you know, Bitcoin is driven through like greed and speculation, which, you know, might be true, but it kind of hijacks greed to, um, I think, perpetuate itself and give a very, very positive outcome. So the, the Austrian, uh, econ you know, armchair economist in me looks at that and says like, mm, those are excellently lined aligned incentives right there. Like each individual is just doing what they think is best for themselves. And as a system, it enacts a totally different change than maybe we originally intended, but it is a positive change. So um, that's one of the you know, I, yeah. principles that I like. About I completely agree. And, you know, for the skeptics that say, you know, Bitcoin is just for the speculators and the traders and whatever else, they're just trying to get, you know, into the game to make money. And yeah, maybe that's the first step. But I would guarantee you that traders and speculators very quickly change and force themselves to learn way more technical abilities in their trading capabilities than they would ever have dreamed of because they want to earn more Bitcoin rather than ever exchange it for fiat. Uh, so I think that's a great example. Uh, yeah, you, you see the the shift in traders' mindsets where they they get in and they're like, "I'm going to increase my U.S. dollar or you know GBP value using Bitcoin," and then very quickly, like months, you know, sometimes even sooner than that, it's like, "Oh no no no, I'm trading all these other things to increase my Bitcoin holdings." <laughs> like that flip happens very quickly, and that's that's like. Uh, you know, one of the the beginnings of the rabbit hole. There's there's a few different rabbit holes I think in Bitcoin. There's first making that decision to even take the leap and buy it because it's so alien. Um, it's it, it's so much scarier for people to make that decision to actually buy Bitcoin. Um, then it's from there. I mean, it's it's having that that mental switch where you're like, now I'm trying to stack more Sats and not necessarily trying to uh, just make more. You know. U.S. dollar or another currency, and then the next step is taking control of private keys. 
because then you actually own something. Like if you don't own your private keys, you know, you're not, uh, you're, you're at the, at the, uh, mercy of, of someone else. And you're hoping that they're taking good control of your, your Bitcoin for you. Um, but private key ownership is, you know, another just mind blowing, uh, you know, innovation in Bitcoin, I think like for the first time, well, you know, one of the first times ever, you can have unilateral control over any amount of wealth um, by memorizing 12 words or by holding, you know, a little, uh, a little device like a treasure or a ledger or a cold card. You can store this information that can contain any amount of value. That's pretty, pretty impressive. Um, you know, I always imagine like you know, throughout history, there's been um, horrible dictatorships and people have had to flee, you know, terrible political situations. Like imagine if they had that ability to flee with their entire life savings by memorizing 12 words. That's like magic. It's like conjuring up value anywhere in the world. Um, so that, you know, that is a, a massively innovative uh, aspect of bitcoin as well yes and that leads us very nicely into what's going on at unchained so i want to get really into this because there's so many questions um especially from um people just entering the space and this is what you know this podcast is primarily uh, aimed at um i think you and i are both of the belief that education is key um I, I, i put out a tweet the other day first rule of bitcoin is educate others second rule is see rule number one um, so if we can get some really basic questions, you, you just said some weird words to some people, I'm sure like private keys and, um, treasure or ledger or cold card or hard wallet, um, taking ownership. And you said it before as well, BCH, um, step one, and I'm going through this myself with, with new people, friends and family that are coming on board and looking at this, um, setting up accounts with whoever they're setting up accounts with. And then coming back with the classic, the BCH story. Um, could you help people understand what they should be buying and why they should be buying it and avoiding? I'll do my best. <laughs> so Bitcoin, Bitcoin was invented or discovered um, in 2009 and was released upon the world. Now, Bitcoin is a network. Um, it's a currency, but it's also a network at the same time. So... Uh, and, and it, it, you know, it's really just a bunch of math and code and then individual incentives in order to run the math and code that you believe is going to be the most valuable. So it's kind of an, uh, intersubjective problem, not only the code that you think is valuable, but the code that other people think is valuable as well. Um, so in, in 2000 and really before this, there was a group, uh, before 2017, there was a group of people who believed that. Bitcoin needed to change in a uh, in a pretty substantial way. So every ten minutes, blocks are found in Bitcoin, and those blocks can only hold a certain amount of data. And the data limit is set on purpose in order to help individuals, such as you know myself or any other individual, run full nodes on cheap laptops. So we want, you know, in order for de decentralization to continue to increase over time. We need to make it as cheap and as easy as possible for people to store all of the blockchain, all of the data about Bitcoin on their own laptops. Um, so there was a limit that was set on the amount of data that could be uh, processed every 10 minutes. And there was a group of people who, decided, who, who felt that that limit needed to be adjusted. So what they did is they 
took the the code, which is available, you know, to anybody. They created a copy of the code, and then they tried to convince um, holders of Bitcoin that their new copy of Bitcoin uh, was better because it had uh, improved features. Now, what has happened since 2017? Uh, we've seen that, in fact, what they created was a minority currency called BCH. So they were out of consensus of the network. So most of like, you know, 98% of people who hold Bitcoin did not agree with them. Um, and so therefore we have, we now have, you know, two, at least two currencies, there's Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash. Um, but Bitcoin cash is worth a mere fraction of what Bitcoin is because it isn't Bitcoin. It's something else. It's another currency that people created and have rallied behind. They can believe that it's Bitcoin, but overwhelmingly the world and, and the, the Bitcoin network has decided that BCH is not Bitcoin. It's something else. Um, so <clears throat> when you look at the values of these two currencies, um, price, price gives you a lot of information um, about, uh, you know, about you know, any good or service. So with Bitcoin or with any currency, if the value of the currency is much higher, that means that uh, far more people have looked at the entire market and have decided that this currency is stronger than another currency. So you can rely on the pricing system to, to give you good information about which currency is stronger and which currency is weaker. Um, the the group of people or the team of individuals who run these other currencies are going to a lot of times try to distract you from that point. They're going to market the currencies as though they're products or stocks or um, you know something else. Uh, utility token is a phrase that's thrown out quite a bit. Like in reality, what these things are are currencies. And some currencies are stronger and weaker than other currencies. You know, the Venezuelan Bolivar is a lot weaker than the U.S. dollar. And the reason we can tell that is because of the value. So Bitcoin is the most valuable. It, is, it costs the most U.S. dollars to buy Bitcoin because it's the most valuable. And millions of people have come to that realization already, which is why it's more valuable. So use... You know, use the pricing system to your advantage here when it comes to currencies. You really, really don't want to be holding weak currencies long term because they lose purchasing power. Um, Bitcoin, over the long term, increases in purchasing power. So if you hold Bitcoin and save in it for a few years, um, you're going to be able to purchase more goods and services in the future. You know, as long as uh, people, Daniel, like you and me, decide that it is still valuable. Now, I think that was a very long-winded answer to part one of your question. Well, we get, we're going to go up the totem pole. Is, we're going to go all the way up the totem pole to exactly what Unchained Capital were doing at the, uh, at the top of it. Um, right. uh, not your keys, not your coin. Correct. So I'll just say, like, Unchained Capital, we, we view Bitcoin as a currency, and it is a unique uh, currency that contains properties that are very different than other currencies. One property is that Bitcoin gives you the ability to have unilateral control over your funds without having an account with you know, any sort of company through the ownership of private keys. 
So public-private key cryptography is the way that you make transactions in Bitcoin. If you hold the private key, which is a secret, you can use that secret to move Bitcoin that are stored and tracked on Bitcoin addresses on the blockchain, move them around. But only if you have control of those private keys. If you don't have control of those private keys, um, you can ask people to move the Bitcoin for you, but you're really relying on them um, staying good on that promise. You know, you're, they, they get to decide whether or not they want to cancel your account or if they um, you know, want to move your coins or not. So Unchained Capital, we, we believe strongly in this not your keys, not your coins mantra. And we tried to build a Bitcoin native financial services platform using that as a, as a foundation. Bitcoin has uh, additional native security properties uh, that we leverage for all of our products and services. And that is multi-signature addresses. So this is a little, getting a little bit more complicated, but... If you hold a private key, generally, uh, that private key is uh, allowing you to use single signature addresses. So it just requires one key in order to move the Bitcoin around. With multi-signature, you can kind of set up a, a quorum of keys where maybe it requires, for, for on-chain capital, two out of three private keys in order to spend Bitcoin. And is, is just to jump in, is each is each private key like a set of twelve to twenty four words, or how how does it exactly work? Yeah. So um, the most typical way today to interact with private keys is through hardware wallets. So the most common are Trezor, Ledger, and Cold Card. Uh, Trezors and Ledgers, or hardware wallets in general, are tools that store private keys. On your device, so it just you can kind of think of this as like a keychain or a key factory almost. It stores your secret and allows you to interact with the blockchain uh, via some sort of wallet tool. So you know this is a Trezor. Trezor has their own wallet that you go to their website and you can interact with their wallet with your device. It's almost like a two-factor authentication device, but more power powerful. Um, in multi-signature, you're taking two or three, you know, more than one unique secrets and combining public pieces of information that, is, that are derived from those secrets into a single address. So this treasure has a, has a master private seed and I can derive uh, a, a piece of public information that I can share and combine in order to build an address. So the key never, the private key or the secret never leaves a single device. Um, but the single device is one out of M pieces of the puzzle needed to spend from it. And I think what, what might also trip people up, certainly trip me up uh, along the way, is you know, um, that the Bitcoin is not stored on that hard wallet. Right? I think that, that that's Correct. a key thing for people to understand because you know, I was talking to a friend the other day and he's like, well, what if I lose this thing? I'm like, aha, you know, it's, it's not in there, that it's not on there. Can you, could you just uh, explain to people exactly what's going on when, when you're using a hardware wallet? Sure. So when you set up a hardware wallet, you're asked to write down a 12 or 24 word secret. And that secret is, uh, it, it can be considered as your master private key. So no, no Bitcoin are stored on any 
uh, on any hardware wallet, they're all stored and tracked by the blockchain, which lives on tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of computers worldwide. These tools are just the keys in order to be able to uh, spend the transact, the spend the Bitcoin. Um, the mental model that I I like to use is that at least for multi-signature, it's kind of separating the the treasure map from the keys to unlock a treasure chest. So on the device, you have the keys to unlock the treasure chest, but you need two keys. Um, but you at the same time, you also need the map in order to even find where the treasure is located. Um, by default, a lot of these devices for single signature hold both the key and the map to find the Bitcoin. So when you when you load up a, a device with the, the proprietary wallet software, it knows where to go to look for the Bitcoin address. Um, and then you can use the key to spend the Bitcoin. Um, but I think the key takeaway is that, yes, these, these devices, these hardware wallets, contain... Um, they, they, they're like a key factory or a key store and Bitcoin never live on the keys. The keys are just used to unlock the Bitcoin, which live on the blockchain. So the Bitcoin live on the blockchain. And if you don't yes. have those private keys to get to those specific Bitcoin that you thought you'd bought. So if you're still trusting um, a third party, uh, one of the exchanges, for example, um, you don't have you don't have the map, you don't have the key, you, you don't really have anything, in essence. Correct. Yeah, you, well, you have an account with them and you have a, a, probably a legal agreement. But, you know, if anything about the last uh, 11 years of Bitcoin has taught us, it's that uh, the, the centralized authorities in Bitcoin tend to have operational security problems at some point in time and uh, Bitcoin are, have been lost or stolen as a result. So all of the, the big hacks that people... Um, you know, used to demonstrate that Bitcoin is insecure are really uh, useful to demonstrate that Bitcoin custodians are generally in insecure. Uh, if you hold private keys and you have the unilateral ability to move your money, uh, Bitcoin's actually incredibly secure, potentially more secure than um, any of the legacy systems that we use to secure our valuables. So if you think about a, a security deposit box at a bank, you still have to, you know, you have a key to open the, the security deposit box, but you still have to go to the bank. They have to let you in. It has to be Monday through Friday, nine to five. Um, and historically, we've seen banks even, you know, drilling security deposit boxes. So they're not even um, particularly secure, even though you legally own the contents and have the key to open the contents. So Bitcoin gives you the keys, gives you full ownership. It, it, uh, stores your money uh, decentralized throughout the entire world. So anywhere you go in the world, your money is already there and you're just bringing the keys along with you when you when you travel with a hardware wallet. So this is what I, I wanted to get to with Unchained Capital, what, what you guys are trying to do because, um, you know, somebody's come into the space that they're falling in the rabbit hole, they've bought their first Bitcoin, they've understood not your key, uh, not your um, keys, not your coin, they've bought themselves a treasure or a ledger or a cold, ca uh, cold card, cold wallet, whatever, and um, now they're like, okay, fine, I, I, I have full ownership of that. But then let's say over the next two to five years, they're stacking more sats, price starts going up, the value starts becoming a little bit uncomfortable because 
you think you're in a great position because now this is all in, in fiat times worth a lot more than you ever, ever invested. But at the same time, it's just a little USB kind of stick hanging around your house or, you know, in a safe or under your bed. Mm-hmm. And that causes a lot of anxiety because people are now like, you know, self-ownership is great until the point it's not like, it's like, whoa, like I, I need a little bit of help now. Um, so where do you guys fit in into that piece of the puzzle? Sure. Well, the, the, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Um, with, with single signature hardware wallets or with, with hardware wallets where you can unilaterally control the Bitcoin on with one key, like that's great for usability. You don't have to, um, act on, you know, wait for anybody else, but it is also a central point of failure, right? If something happens to you individually, or if your, uh, 12 or 24 word list is, is stolen or found, um, an attacker has pretty much immediate access to your funds. So at Unchained Capital, we offer a couple different services that use this concept of multi-signature addresses in order to protect the coins. And the primary benefit of multi-sig from my perspective is that it, it reduces that or eliminates a single point of failure. So if you have a two out of three multi-sig addresses, which require two keys in order to sign uh, transactions and spend from them, then you have you have really separated the treasure map from the, the the keys to unlock the treasure. With just the keys, if one of your keys is discovered or your twenty four word list is discovered by an attacker, they have no ability to find your Bitcoin because they don't have the the map with which to to find the location. Um, once again, just to recap, on single signature, if they steal uh, a hardware wallet or get access to it. They can immediately find the Bitcoin and move it out. With multi-signature, even if they steal a key without additional information about the location, um, they have almost nothing. Now, you know, if if you find that your um, that your private keys are compromised, you know, we, we always recommend moving them to a new address. But you have some time there. You don't have you you don't your funds are not immediately at risk. Um, so yes, we use multi-signature addresses to offer financial services. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, we consider ourselves the first Bitcoin native financial services provider. And we do that through multi-signature where keys are distributed among multiple parties. For one of our services, we offer the vaults and, uh, there's a couple different types of vaults, but the most popular is client controlled. Whereas a client, you get to hold two keys and unchained capital holds one key, which means you still have unilateral control over your funds. You are still holding your money because you have two out of three keys. But we are there as a security partner uh, for backup. We deliver a nice user interface. Um, we help you with operational security. So we will start emailing you once per quarter to make sure that you still have control of your keys and none of them have been compromised. Um, and we can do that by creatively distributing keys among multiple parties. So we call that collaborative custody for multi-signature. On the other hand, too, we can use collaborative custody to offer what seems like traditional financial services, but secured through the native properties of Bitcoin. So really the first product that we offered at Unchained were Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans. So you deposit your Bitcoin into a multi-sig address as a client, you can still hold one of your keys. We hold a second key, 
And then a totally neutral and separate organization holds that third key. Now, the legal structures are a little bit different there, right? The neutral third party will act on our behalf um, if you've stored Bitcoin as collateral because we've provided you with a U.S. dollar loan. But from a client perspective, that allows you at any time to cryptographically verify that your money is sitting in the correct address and you control one out of three keys. So should anything happen to Unchained Capital for any reason, you could cooperate with that neutral third party to recover funds. Is there still trust involved? Absolutely. But this is the trust-minimized way for us to be able to offer financial services and at the same time use those native security properties of Bitcoin, which is private key ownership. Um, and this is, this is what we believe is <clears throat> the, the, the way to grow a robust uh, Bitcoin native economy where you, you really don't need any single organization to be holding a majority of keys for most products and services. Um, you can set up networks of multiple organizations that hold one out of M keys in multi-signature quorums, which means that they're no longer central points of failure. Um, so that's, that's what we're really excited about in the future is, is working with innovative uh, Bitcoin companies to grow this multi-sig or collaborative custody network. Um, and for, for clients such as yourself or potential clients, um, today our vaults are a really, really great way to secure your Bitcoin for the long term, as well as learn about multi-signature and how it can be used. Because uh, the other thing that we kind of believe, or we, I believe personally, is that as soon as people get to the point of Bitcoin ownership where they hold their own private keys, I kind of view that as a one-way exit. Like they're never, people are, are not really going to be uh, comfortable with giving up control of your of their private keys once they have gotten through the process of understanding why it's valuable and holding private keys. So those people will still need financial services, but I, we believe that they will be demanded in a way that still gives clients control of at least a part of, of the, the multi-sig quorum. Where do you see the, the biggest opportunity for unchained cap um, addressable market-wise? Who's coming to you more often than not? We work with a, a variety of Bitcoiners. You know, we work with companies, we work with uh, individuals, we work with trusts. Um, we, you know, for, for the loans product, we've worked with a variety of, of different types of people as well. People who are trading, people who are using it to invest in their business, people who are using it to leverage up on Bitcoin. So we've, we've had worked with a variety of different people, but the one thing that I've found that's in common with all of them is, is they're, they're Bitcoiners. They hold private keys. Um, you know, we're, our, our market is just different than I think some of our competition where um, our competition is kind of addressing those people who are coming to Bitcoin from more of a traditional um, ramp and they're comfortable with the account level uh, features. So setting up an account with a, with an organization, you know, depositing Bitcoin in their private, you know, in addresses under control of their private keys, and then taking a loan out um, from from that Bitcoin. Our, our customers generally uh, don't uh, don't feel comfortable with that, and so they really really value the additional control and security that multi signature gives them, especially when they get to hold a private key. Um, so it's really, you know, we're 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 unique in that um, we're using 
Bitcoin multi-signature in order to deliver financial services. Okay, so so let's um let's walk through just like a scenario, like a typical onboarding scenario. I I come to you, I say, hey guys, um, you know, I, I would I'm interested in this this vaults um, service that you're offering. What's the next step if I if I have a hard wallet? Um, you've been um, talking about Trezor. We can use that as an example. Um, then what? Like, what, what? What's the next step? How does how do we progress? Sure. So there's a few different ways um, that we we help to onboard clients. Um, the first, of course, is you can just go to our website and sign up if you'd like to just try it out on your own. Uh, the process we hope is is nice and user friendly. Uh, we do suggest that if you want a multi-signature vault, that you have at least two hardware wallets, uh, two separate master private keys that you're using, and uh, you, you know, once you've onboarded, you click or you, you you go through the process of actually generating an address, which involves you sharing um, public information derived from your master secret with Unchained Capital. So remember I said earlier, we're using public-private key cryptography. You're taking your master secret and you're generating what is called an extended public key that you then share with us. And we use two of your extended public keys, one of ours, to cryptographically link them and generate a unique address that is under the control of all three of those private keys or master secrets. Um, so the onboarding process, it, you know, it sounds a little complicated, but it looks like create a vault, uh, you know, pick your type of vault, client controlled or multi-institution. Um, if you, you know, a multi-institution vault is where uh, you would hold one key, we would hold one key, and a neutral third party would hold that third key. We kind of view that as an interesting um, security opportunity for uh, groups that are worried about themselves as the single point of failure. So if they're worried about maybe a rogue employee or rogue family member getting control of the um, of the private keys, then the multi-institution model um, would require them to collaborate with a totally neutral third party, either us or um, the, the company that we work with. But for a client-controlled vault, um, where you hold two keys, we hold one key, you then go through and just upload those extended uh, public keys, which is um, rather straightforward. Plug in your device, click new key, um, it goes through the process on your device, and then hit create, and then you have your own uh, Bitcoin address. So if you have two hardware wallets and you've gone through the onboarding from the account level, you can build a vault in minutes. It really doesn't take very long. The, the hardest part is figuring out how to use your hardware wallets in the first place, I would say. <laughs> Getting them set up, thinking through you know, how to secure your, your hardware wallets and your recovery seeds. That's the, the truly difficult part. Setting up the address, I, I think, is pretty quick and, and straightforward once you have all that other stuff out of the way. And you know, we, we also help with the operational security as well. So different, <clears throat> different people require different uh, operational security, and there's no... Unfortunately, no perfect solution for operational security. It always is uh, amounts to a bunch of trade-offs that you can make, um, and those trade-offs always change as well, depending on the value that you're securing. So, as your Bitcoin increases in value, you know you you might you might have a setup that is good up until hundred thousand U.S. dollars worth of Bitcoin, but then once you know once the value hits a million U.S. dollars worth of Bitcoin, maybe it's time to take a few more extra steps in securing it. 
Um, but we, we view ourselves as sort of an active participant in that as well. So you can always bounce ideas off of our team or, um, or collaborate with us to, to sort of come up with a solution that fits your needs specifically. And I mean, this all comes at some kind of fee-based structure, I'm sure. Could you, um, let us know how that works? Sure. So for the, uh, client controlled vaults where you hold two keys, we hold one key. There's no setup or storage fee. So you can today, if you're comfortable with onboarding with a financial services provider, so that involves going through the KYC AML process, if you're comfortable with that, you can set up as many addresses as you want and you can sign as many transactions and uh, as you need. What we charge for there is when we are asked to sign with our key. So we, Unchained Capital, holds one key. If we're asked to help recover uh, maybe a lost private key that you have, or if you if you're traveling and you only have a single device with you and you need to access some of your funds, we can help sign transactions. But that's what we charge for, and that's twenty dollars per individual. Um, it's a little bit different for businesses, of course. And then for the multi institution model, so if you want to set up a vault where it involves those three unique organizations, that does have a setup and storage fee. I think it's a five hundred dollar setup fee, and then uh, twenty five basis points per year. Where we really view the most value that we can provide is through financial services, though. So we, we want people and encourage people to get familiar with multisig. We want multisig to be ubiquitous. So we have even released an open source tool called Caravan, which allows you in the browser without installing anything to set up multisig addresses and learn about them. You can use them to store Bitcoin, spend Bitcoin from multisig, but we really want to get multisig to become the ubiquitous security standard for Bitcoin. Um, and where we want to charge clients is for those financial services. So in the future, um, we're, we're building out extended group account functionality. So if you have a business, um, you can do account level features that you would expect from enterprise software. If you're a family, you can you know set up legal joint accounts with us or... Uh, inheritance accounts and, and tell us who's holding which keys and who to work with in which scenarios. Those are the types of things we want to be charging for, not not multi-sig um, necessarily, at least for now. <laughs> I think that's very interesting because uh, I think what you'll find um, in most families, um, talking as a family man, um, one, one parent might fall down the rabbit hole and um, the other one's like, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah, yeah okay. But if that isn't locked up somehow and easily transferable, if something, if the worst should happen to to the Bitcoin holder, um, yeah, that, that that's that's a tragedy, <laughs> you know. Absolutely, yep. That's that's exactly the type of thing that we're we're trying to solve for. And using using multi signature, you can get really really flexible with how you solve that problem. So just a client controlled vault where you hold two keys and we hold one key. If something should happen to the to the vault owner, you know, as long as uh, a loved one, an executor, an heir, whoever has one private key, they can come to us and we can collaborate to move the funds. You know, of course, we're not going to sign transactions uh, for anybody, but if they, if you know, if if there's a death or something, if there's a legal court order or probate court order, we can then comply with that. So that gives your uh, loved ones a, a channel, right? 
you can, in an envelope even, put a recovery seed or a hardware wallet with instructions like, should anything happen to me, take this to Unchained Capital, they can help recover funds. So it at least gives you um, some tools and, and a, a team of people who understand Bitcoin innately um, so that your loved ones can, can get access to your coins. And one of the other really interesting kind of future products and, and on our roadmap is that I'm excited for is that we're, we're giving, we'd like to give some more flexibility with how you share keys. So I don't know about you, Daniel, but I'm kind of the Bitcoin guy in my circle. So, uh, but in a lot of times as a Bitcoin guy, we're, we're asked to, um, be responsible for information, right? Maybe private key information or, or, you know, we just feel responsible for our friends and families using multi-signature and collaborative custody, like you can then be a part of uh, someone's operational security without having the full ownership over funds, right? So if you're storing recovery seeds for people today, what you could do instead is hold one out of three keys. And I think that would be better because then you as an individual aren't a single point of failure for someone else, but at the same time, you can still be an active participant. You know, legally, we can set up the account where they own, they, they legally own the Bitcoin, but have one out of three keys. Unchained Capital has a key. And Daniel, you have the third key, for example. So I'm very excited about the enhanced group account functionality that we're releasing that's going to enable us to do that very easily, um, sharing keys among families. Seems to me you guys are like um, doing the classic startup thing and scratching your own itches and building a product around, around that. Um, is that a fair statement? Absolutely. <laughs> so we, we, you know, we, a lot of us have been Bitcoiners for a long time and we're not all, you know, I, I would, one of the nice things about on-chain capital, I would say is that we're not all like a homogenous, you know, monoculture. Like there are individuals who are much uh, more staunch Bitcoiners than others. And having this diverse cast of people like really improves, I think the overall product. Like we have people on our team who are straight up traders, you know, we have people who are, um, developers coming to it from totally different industries. And then we have a bunch of, of very hardcore Bitcoiners. Like I kind of consider myself one of the hardcore Bitcoiners because I came to uh, Unchained through through Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, we, we a lot of us are, are really just designing products that uh, we're trying to uh, use ourselves. So the this, this key sharing or group account functionality is certainly uh, designed as a result of of individuals on our team having to store private key information for for friends and families, and just being like, mm, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, what's next? What, what are the big plans for Unchained? You, you just talked about a new service that you're looking to launch. Um, what's going on with mm-hmm. with you guys right now? That is uh, that is probably the biggest thing that we're working on right now um, that uh-huh. I can share. Uh, but the, there's other things that are very exciting as well. So we're about to release a very big upgrade to Caravan, which, as I mentioned, was our open source, free to use, multi sig uh, coordinator. It's it's like a it allows you, you know, without installing anything on your on your computer, to uh, build and spend from multi sig addresses using your hardware wallet. So it's a great way to learn about multi sig. Try it out. Um, we're releasing a, a huge upgrade to that, which lays the foundation for us to be able to support cold card, which is a very, very popular hardware wallet among the sort of hardcore Bitcoiners. It's um, Bitcoin only. It does some unique air gapped 
um, signing. It uses partially signed Bitcoin transactions. So you can look out for those upgrades coming uh, very soon. And they will likely appear in Caravan first before our uh, private product, because we can then do kind of advanced testing and, and advanced features out in, uh, in, in the open and open source community first, and then move it to the private application once we feel confident that the um, software is, is robust. Okay, before we get to the final uh, question, let's make sure everybody knows exactly where to find you and uh, find out more information. And what we're going to do, actually, um, listeners, after the final question, we're going to switch to a video and Phil's going to give me uh, an online um, demo via Zoom here, which uh, they're going to upload to their YouTube channel. And um, you'll be able to see Phil talk me through exactly what it looks like from a customer's perspective to onboard it Unchained, uh, which I think would be pretty cool. So uh, where can people find you? So I'm Phil. My email address is phil at unchained-capital.com. I'm on Twitter at phil underscore Geiger. And uh, you can find you know Unchained Capital at our website at unchained-capital.com. Uh, schedule some time with us if you want to see a personal demo and talk through your personal operational security questions. Um, and somebody from our Vault concierge team will will be happy to show you exactly how to set up your multi-sig vault, um, or you know apply for a loan if you're interested in in potentially um, getting getting some liquidity from your Bitcoin. So yep, find us uh, on Twitter. I'm I'm uh, always happy to respond directly to DMs and and uh, engage with you on Twitter. So say hi. Excellent. And the final question, um, if there was one person that you could implant your Bitcoin knowledge into who would then go and share it with their audience, an audience far greater than you could ever imagine, who would that person be and why? Mm, I think, ooh, that is a really hard question. There's so many different uh, channels there. I I don't I don't know if there's like a single leader. I, I kind of like the fact that Bitcoin is so grassroots and that it kind of takes different personalities longer than others to find it. And I, I found that generally the the people who have the most you know traditional or legacy system power it takes them a little bit longer to find Bitcoin than. Um, than like you and I do, or people who are uh, just you know out there in the public. So it, I guess, um, man, yeah. If there was one person, then I think it would just be really exciting or funny to see a central banker around the world just kind of throw in the towel and be like, "We're just going to start adding Bitcoin to our reserves." Um, but but I really really just like how it's it's somewhat egalitarian in that way, right? Like it doesn't treat anybody differently depending on, you know, the amount of clout that you have in on one platform or another or in one currency or another. It's like going to be confusing for everybody. And in fact, sometimes the more power you have, the more confusing it's going to be to you. <laughs> well, nice answer. Nice answer. Um, <laughs> I, I, a bit of a cop No, 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 no. <laughs> it's funny. I, I had somebody tweet me um, a while back and say, uh, you know, Along the lines of, you know, your last question, no one. Like, I don't want any mainstream influencer or anybody getting involved in it. I, I want people to come and find it for themselves, which is like a perfectly valid answer. It's, um, you know, that that's, yeah, brilliant. Um, I've had a, a lot of um, wide-ranging answers, uh, you know, anywhere from uh, John, John Ballas called out the Dalai Lama the other day 
And it's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. Uh, Mark Yusko went for The Rock. Um, like, you know, <laughs> and uh, Joe Rogan just keeps coming up time and time again, uh, just because of uh, you know the amount of uh, people he can reach. Um, so yeah, he's got a great audience, and he seems. I mean, I imagine he's already a Bitcoiner. It's so funny, like you, you at least in 2020, in the beginning of the year in January, I, I, I personally noticed a very big difference in how mainstream media was uh, engaging and talking about Bitcoin. Um, and I think it's because they're all hodlers now. I think it, I think pe- more and more people are becoming incepted. And once you actually have some and start learning about it, the way that you talk about it changes. And it, it has felt like this year, a lot of the, the mainstream media anchors have, uh, on, been onboarded yeah man it's um it's going to be really interesting to see what happens um well we didn't even talk about the uh the halving or the halvening however you want to pronounce it <laughs> um uh, for another day uh phil i really appreciate you coming on and uh and sharing all your knowledge and talking about unchained i think what you're doing is really really interesting it's going to solve a lot of problems and i think people are going to start sleeping a little bit easier at night if they um go in and, and create a vault so um if you've got any final closing thoughts, please uh, please share them. And um, thanks again. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me, Daniel. It's been a, a pleasure. And uh, you know, to all your listeners, um, just try out multi signature. Like let's 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 make multi signature a thing because it is it is so much better than sing, single signature. So whether you're using us or Electrum or Caravan or Casa, like let's let's demand as Bitcoiners that companies stop becoming single points of failure. And we can only do that through building this network of multi-signature. Um, so I think we're, you know, we're still in the early days there, but we are really proud to be uh, pushing you know, standards forward in that way. And we'd love to have you participate and give us feedback and help us. Excellent. And as I said before, you are going to give me uh, a live demo, um, which you're going to put on your YouTube channel. So, that's not going to make for, for great audio, but uh, where should people, if they're interested in following up and watching you talk me through uh, an on-screen live demo, where, where, are they, where can they find that? Unchained Capital has a YouTube channel where we have some great product uh, demos of, of Caravan and our vaults and our loans, as well as um, a collection of podcasts that team members have been on throughout the years. Um, so definitely check out our YouTube channel. Um, we'll also, of course, be sharing it on social media on Twitter uh, when when the video is released, so that people can can watch us learn about multi sig together. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, appreciate it, and uh, yeah, well, let's jump into this um, this video part. Hey guys, thanks for listening and thanks for sticking around. And uh, thanks again to Phil for taking the time to to explain everything that they're doing at Unchained Cap and to talk about his journey into the rabbit hole and some of his writing. I honestly urge you to get over to Guy Swan's podcast at the Crypto Economy and listen to that Unchained Capital series because it is absolutely unbelievable. Um, I've not got through all of them yet, I, I will be honest. I've listened to many of them and each time I just get blown away and Guy does such a great job. Um, now, Phil did give me a video demo. Uh, there was a lot of um, uh, <laughs> mishaps during the, our first attempt, which was uh, a little um, unfortunate, but uh, we got there in the end. We, we had to do another recording the next day 
which Phil was gracious enough again to give up like another hour of his time to take me through step by step on a screen share exactly how the products work at Unchained and what they're building and what they have already built and where they're going with it next. So I urge you to check that out. That you know, it's um, he keeps it very simple, but then also does go into the technical details. So it's it's something for everybody to go and to go and watch. And it's on their YouTube channel, so you can go and find that. Um, yeah, big thanks to Phil. Uh, really uh, great guy. Seemed like a great company, actually. One to watch for the future. And let's um, let's wish them all the luck because they seem to be very committed to the uh, the Bitcoin space and the ethos um, around Bitcoin. So thanks again for listening. And um, please reach out on Twitter. Go find Phil. Go find Unchained. Uh, reach out to myself. Really appreciate anybody that um, takes the time to comment or share. Uh, you know, it all makes a great big difference in this world of um, trying to get the uh, educational message of Bitcoin out there to as many people as we can. Thanks for being part of it. Take care. Good day.